0: I'm Eileen Dunn, and this is the God Slot. In 1995, director Tim Robbins took the world of cinema by storm with the movie Dead Man Walking. The film, which told the story of Sister Helen Prejan and her ministry to convicts on death row in the US as they awaited execution, was greatly enhanced by an Oscar-winning performance from Robbins' wife, Susan Sarandon, in the role of the crusading nun. During last summer, the real Sister Helen paid a visit to Ireland and she gave an exclusive interview to Jerry. Mac- Cardle. Jerry began by asking her why she had decided to enter religious life. Uh,
1: I had great teachers. Sisters of Saint Joseph taught me at Baton Rouge, Louisiana, went to Saint Joseph Academy, and I loved learning and I loved teaching. I said I want to be a teacher. Also I saw the sisters were really free to give themselves over to. And so I was what we call a child bride of Christ. Entered at the age of 18 and been riding the wave ever since because Vatican II happened. And nobody took the bit in their teeth more than the American nuns. And my uh, community was in there too. And we rode right in over to the people, everything Vatican II said to do. Get in there, be with the people.
2: Um, I was talking to your colleague, um, John Chitterster, last year. And... I put this to her that, you know, the impression we had of the pre-Vatican two nun was these, you know, pale-faced creatures swathed in black from head to toe who went around looking pious all the time and glided around rooms and, and uh, clucked around priests and, and made tea and did all that.
1: But the point, You're a poet. <laughs> glided around rooms,
2: clucked around priests. But, but, but she said to me know that she found them these well-educated intelligent women and that was what attracted her
1: to join. Yeah absolutely look at that and you know we're two of a kind. One time I saw Jonah at a meeting she said Alan we gotta take care of ourselves man we're out there we're out there the two of us because we probably travel the most and do speaking in the widest venue But and, before,
2: you, before you started in the, the, the work you do now what, what was your first
1: appointment? Well I was teach always teaching so it was first kids, 7th and 8th grade, middle school, high school, which I loved. I loved them. And uh, then I was the director of religious ed. And see, after Vatican II, it's how do you take Christianity and make it relevant in the world and get away from all the dogma and all the piety and the disconnect? But I was disconnected in a lot of ways before I woke up to the full implications of the gospel which we're getting a lot from Pope Francis now, which is to get over to poor people. I had grown up in privilege. The only way I knew African-American people growing up in Baton Rouge, because it was during the Jim Crow, deep segregation days, was as our servants. I only knew Ellen, who worked in the house, Jesse worked in the yard. I didn't even know their last names. And Mom and Daddy were kind to them, but never questioned the system. So when I awakened to justice, that the integral part of following Jesus is being on the side of the marginated and the poor who have no voice, who don't have any clout with the political powers. And so, content. I mean, they are doomed almost to continue living in poverty. I woke up and I moved in among poor people, African Americans, who became for the first time in my life my peers and my teachers.
2: And did you do that with the blessing of your superiors? Oh,
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, No, our sisters have always been open. It's that listening, following the Spirit to where the needs of the people are. In fact, that crystallizes, I think, what nuns are really about. And it was interesting when this thing happened with the Vatican that came down on American nuns and said we were radical feminists. Where they got the radical feminist thing? I don't know. You have that freedom to follow where the Spirit's leading, and it's always leading to the people and what the people need, and then to be there for them. So when
2: did you first become aware of um, the death penalty, uh, the the problems surrounding it? And what was, at the time, what was the Catholic Church's attitude towards the death penalty? Was it laissez-faire? Did it approve of it? Did it not
1: disapprove of it? Very convoluted. Uh, traditional teaching had always been the the state has a right to take life. That goes back to Thomas Aquinas and augustine and and so have made statements. the Catholic bishops have made something like forty different statements about the death penalty, but it's been so weak that prosecutors have quoted them to the state legislators and the, the sticking point was when you have a real terrible crime, Well, surely we can execute them for the safety of the people, see. And so in my own... It was 1980 that I woke up. I was 41 years old when I finally got it. Wait a minute. You know, to follow the way of Jesus, just to be on the side of the poor, to resist things that are wrong. See, I wasn't even aware of the systems of things being wrong. That happened in 1980. The Catholic Archbishop in New Orleans had been in the military. He was all for the death penalty. So I began, you know, after I go through this execution, see this person being killed, see the protocol of death, begin to learn the legal system that's upholding it, I begin to speak out. The Archbishop of New Orleans is on the other side of the issue and blocked the Louisiana bishops from making any kind of strong statement. And so the dialogue then went on with the people and then eventually with Pope John Paul where I got a direct dialogue with him and then just questioned, does the Catholic Church only uphold the inviolable dignity only of innocent life? What about the guilty? And when I'm walking with a man to execution and he's shackled, hand and foot, and he says, Sister, please pray God holds up my legs. And I said to Pope John Paul, where is the dignity in this death? A man who's been rendered completely defenseless is being taken out and killed. And then he did speak out. It wasn't solely me. Dialogue was going on, and that you see, the church is the people of God. It's all the people. The dialogue is like bubbles in a pot coming up everywhere. And uh, but but it, I did have the direct contact with him and the direct conversation solely around that on that point. And in St. Louis for the first time, my dialogue was in '97. And in 99, when he came to St. Louis, he'd been in the United States four other times, never included the death penalty in any of the things he spoke of. And he said, And no to the death penalty, which is cruel and unnecessary. Even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. That was 99. Catholic bishops in the United States then issue a a statement, a pamphlet, declaring a Catholic campaign to end the death penalty, and we begin to see energy and galvanizing forces around it. And so the segment of the population that's undergone the most dramatic change in understanding of the death penalty are Catholics, in 1996, 80% of Catholics supported the death penalty, and the more they went to church, the more they supported it, by 2011, it had dropped down to 59%, and among young Catholics, 30 and younger, like 64% against the death penalty. It's a big dramatic shift in attitude, and that's solely coming out of education, education, education. To me, it always seemed a
2: no-brainer that, that if, if our definition of murder is the premeditated taking
1: of human life, what else is execution? Yeah, of course it is. But see, so what is it that holds people in place from seeing that, see? That's always the interesting question. And that's what spirituality is about. What is it that allows good people in the United States still hovering at 63% support for the death penalty? And I've found it's like surface soul support. It's not in the depths, but because people have not reflected on it. And I spend my time crisscrossing our nation talking to people. It's not lectures, it's story where I take them over deeply into the issue on both sides, help them get in touch with their own hearts, and give them information. They don't have a clue about how this thing works they, and how broken it is and how innocent people are being thrown in with guilty because they have no experience of the criminal justice system, most people. And the more middle class and comfortable you are, the more you're removed from poor people. It's very much a poor person's issue. And I said that to Pope John Paul. I said, the closer the bishops are to poor people, the quicker they get this issue. Remove from poor people, you don't get it. You think you have to do it for the safety of the country or whatever. Remove from the poor, remove from the suffering, and remove from what goes on in the death penalty. So through storytelling, that, I know that's my mission, that's what I gotta do to wake up the people, to to really to wake up the nation for us to change this, and we do see changes happening. Since 2001, there's begun to be a shift. First of all, it it's almost on the nightly news about another innocent person getting off a death row and people began to realize the system was broken. The second key part of the education is that people have to know they can be safe without the state killing people. And we really give people life without parole sentences. They're not going to get out of prison. And governors are not commuting those sentences. So that's really in place. And for a lot of people, it's just knowing they can be safe.
2: I just want to pick you up on something you said there about you talking to John Paul. Were you face-to-face with him?
1: but yeah both first it was a letter and then it was face to face Okay, and
2: did you have to wear your nun's hat no, in front of him? no no, no you mean he actually would talk to a religious woman in oh, civilian absolutely. dress? oh
1: absolutely oh well yeah. yeah now you can't have this exaggerated sense of him and make him a caricature now but he was very strict
2: on that he insisted that that religious women where the religious stress That may be what
1: he said in statements. He met with me, I'm going to tell you, and he didn't say, change your clothes before you meet me. I mean, you know, it's like life goes on. It's much bigger than the statements put out. And it was around a man, Joseph Odell in Virginia. He's the second story in my book, The Death of Innocence. An innocent man, all of Italy got involved in Joseph Odell's case. They buried him in Italy after he was executed. And that was the occasion of meeting him. But see, when you do a letter, and I know it got put right in his hands. My friend in the Vatican said it went right into the lap of the Pope, and he read every word. And you really get a chance to talk. But you're right. See, how can dialogue happen? And again, I'm turning to Pope Francis now. He's bringing back a more collegial church, that bishops should have real synods, that you just have this rubber stamping from this central force in the Vatican. And there has been a huge era of repression of intellectual dialogue give and take from the last three popes. They've rolled back Vatican II in a lot of ways. We've had a hundred and five theologians silence. A hundred and five. You can't write. You can't speak. You have a lot of repression happening from bishops. Joan Chittister's been through it herself, where they've forbid her to, to go to a place to speak. And so I'm really hopeful now that with Pope Francis The dialogue can open, and just in things he said, like, about gay people, who am I to judge when God looks at a gay person? Does God love that person? Talking with the atheist, Scalfari in La Republica, uh, God's not Catholic. When people are open and are, will meet you on the road doing good, that we need to spread love in the world, that sounds a lot like Jesus, and we haven't heard that in a long, long time, which means dialogue. You have to encounter people. You meet them where they are.
2: I'll go back to Francis. I just want to go back to John Paul for a second. because <laughs>
1: so got to think about uh, John
2: Paul. No, I Paul. haven't, because I, I, no, I, I was always aware that there were two sides to him, that on one side there was the very autocratic figure, but then I also heard other people who gave lovely examples of his very pastoral side. And... Um, How did you find him? Did you like him as a person? Did you think he's a nice guy? Here we
1: go, y'all. I'm going to tell you. I'm standing there and bringing him in for us to meet him. And the the photographer's taking your picture. I wasn't aware of a photographer or a flashbulb or anything. And I have my hand over my heart like this, and I'm looking at him with deep affection and compassion because he looked so old and sick. He walked in so slowly. And it's just like, oh, just like this. Mm. And, and then when I had that chance to meet him, this was after the letter, I, when I took his hand, and he kissed me on the forehead. I went with our old nuns. I said, if y'all want to kiss me on the Pope's spot here, you might get some indulgences. I mean, we had a lot of fun with the Pope's spot. But anyway, mm. when I, and when I took his hand, I said, thank you. Thank you for helping the church to stand up on that de- on the issue of the death penalty because he did make a difference in that. We all wheat and weeds. You Mm -hmm. don't stand up equally on everything. So I'll always be grateful to him that he did that. But, I I mean, there were other things, of course, that I don't agree with him on at all.
2: Tell me now, and I'm sure you've been through this hundreds of times, and I don't want to dwell on it, the personal instances, you know, that gave rise to Dead Man Walking and your subsequent book.
1: I call it Riding the Wave of Grace, We have a maxim in our community, never leap ahead of grace. It's grace that calls us. First, it was awakening that the gospel meant being on the side of poor people, which meant getting out of my suburban, you know, environment of privilege and safety and, and moving in with poor people. Then it was writing a letter to a man on death row that I didn't even know was going to be executed. We had had an unofficial moratorium on executions. I think I'm only going to be a pen pal. That's Patrick Sonier. Two and a half years later, I'm there in the killing chamber when they, when they kill him, and I tell him, look at my face. And I walked out of that execution chamber, and I had been changed forever. Because when you witness something and know the people are not seeing it, they're removed from it, that I had to declare it. I had to be a witness. I had to go to tell the story. And I, and the story I could tell was about being on both sides. Let's be with the victim's families. Let's just, to tell a victim's family what we're going to do for you now is we're going to seek the death penalty and then we'll call you in when it's time. You get to witness as we kill the one who killed your loved one and that is supposed to heal you, give you closure and all that. What happens to them in that? So I knew I had that story to tell with the victim's family, then I had the story to tell. Here's a horrible crime, stand in horror of the crime, two innocent teenage kids killed, and then stand in mute horror as I watch this ratcheting to death and this protocol of death, as good men, these guards, who have to do the killing for us, take this man and walk him across this room and strap him down in a chair and kill him. And I got it about the gospel. I got it. The last will be first. Everyone, no matter what they have done, are worth more than the worst act of their life. The gospel. And to be there with people that are being... It's torture. The human, the death penalty is torture. Our Supreme Court doesn't acknowledge... I get it. I catch on fire with it. The
2: first death you witnessed... Uh... By execution. Was it the electric chair? Yes. Is it as clean and as clean cut as they try to tell us? Clean?
1: Yeah. Who told you it was clean? Well, you know, they
2: tried to tell us the man feels no pain, it's instant death.
1: They just had a guy in, where was it, Missouri or Kansas, for the lethal injection. See, they're running out of the lethal injection stuff, because Europe won't send it. And so, oh, we're going to try this new drug to kill this guy? Ten minutes after they've injected him, uh, he's thrashing about. They don't know what's going on inside a person. I mean, that's what makes the death penalty possible. You turn a switch, say, not human the way we are, turn a switch. Well, okay, so they feel a little plain, but it's pretty clean cut. They just go to sleep. When they introduced lethal injection in Louisiana, one of the guards said, shoot, it's going to be boring, nothing to watch. No action. And we don't know what human beings are experiencing inside and lethal injection. And one of the terrible things about it is one of the drugs they usually administer paralyzes people completely. They can't cry out. They can't lift a finger. They can't blink their eyes. And what if in the combination they're paralyzed, but when they do that potassium chloride that stops your heart They feel it all, like fire going down their veins and exploding their heart. They're paralyzed, they can't cry out. We don't know what happens inside of them. And then we have this crass, calloused attitudes like Justice Antonin Scalia, one of the five Catholics on the Supreme Court, who says, well, if you're not sure if the drugs are working, slap them around a little bit, see if if they're awake. And then he said things like, You're supposed to experience pain with this punishment. Like, bring on the pain. And that's that disconnect. And when we disconnect that people are human like we are. And I know Ireland doesn't have the death penalty, but every country has to deal with this thing of terrorists and how you can take people, hold them without a charge, what you do to them to get information. Ireland's under siege about that human rights issue, just like England is, just like everybody is. So you don't have the death penalty per se, but boy, you sure got the fear of terrorists that can make you do inhuman things to people. And you say you're doing it for a good cause to get information that could save a whole city or whatever. So the notion of a humane execution is a nonsense. And Tim Robbins, in the way he constructed the film of Dead Man Walking, He said, we're not going to have an innocent person. We know we shouldn't execute innocent people. He's going to be guilty. And more and more states are switching to lethal injection. So I know, Helen, you were with people in the electric chair, but we're going to change it to lethal injection because we have to take them there. Is there a humane way to kill a conscious, imaginative human being who is told he's going to die and counts down the days and anticipates his death and dies inside his mind, a thousand times before he dies. Is there a humane way to do this? And we need to bring people there. And it's a very fair film. He said, we're not doing propaganda. I'm against the death penalty. And I know how you'd craft a film that you'd show the crime early on and then it kind of fades and then all your sympathy and compassion is with the person who's being executed and his mother and what she's suffering. We're going to keep bringing them back and forth and the film at Dead Man Walking* does that there's Matthew Ponslet executed on the lethal injection gurney and then we're back aerial view the bodies in the woods of the victims and the audience keeps going back and forth across the great divide and pull of ambivalence in their own hearts because most people are ambivalent about this and just listen to your chat shows when there's a terrible murder in Ireland we got to get the death penalty back it's in all of us as
2: as a religious sister, were you conscious, uh, being with this man, dying and being killed, were you conscious of, of his soul, of
1: his spirit? Of course. And God was reaching out to me. I look later, how did I do this? How did I walk with him? How was I in there with him? Why didn't I go to pieces? And grace holds you up. The last thing I did, I didn't put this in the book, because I... I it was almost like I, well, I just didn't. As the guards, I had walked with him to the electric chair, so I had my hand on his shoulder, and I was leaving him. We were at the door of in the killing chamber, and the guards had me by either arm, very firmly, to bring me over to where the witnesses were going, going to be. And I kissed Pat on the back, and I said, "Pray for me." I meant, remember me.
2: Would your experiences of, of execution, would they color your views in any way about euthanasia, which is a big debate at the moment? Yeah. Should people be allowed to take their own lives and die with dignity when they reach a certain stage where they feel, I can't go on
1: with this? Here's the thing. It's not the people. It's when you have state or government involved in helping those decisions to be made that I don't trust any more than I can ever trust that a government can be entrusted with saying some people have done a crime so terrible we can take their life. So you begin to get involved in what's the legislation going to be, what's the protection for people, that the right to die can, with just a few slips, become the duty to die of old people who have no advocates, nobody to speak for them, and that's why I don't trust it. I don't trust that at all.
2: How has it... Affected you as a person? Has as, as this made you a better person, do you think?
1: Well, I don't go around judging. Am I doing better? Am I a worse person? i tell you this, I'm more alive. And I know to concentrate on the essential things now. The essential things are issues of life. People are really suffering. Really suffering. And I was disconnected from it a long, long time. And I didn't know how privilege was cloaking me and protecting me. I've never had a baby out of wedlock. I've never done drugs. I've never robbed or killed people. I was so protected, so resourced. I never had to do a crime. I was educated. I, I got a sense of agency in my life that I could do things that I, and put myself at there, articulate, write a book, make a speech.
2: But yet, yet, Sister, we talked about the the visitation, uh, the the Vatican visitation under Pope Benedict, women religious, and how you were told you were radical feminists and you had to stop all this stuff and that. Pope Francis has endorsed that finding, has he not?
1: Pope Francis steps into the office as Pope. He's asked about it. He said, let it proceed. Watch what's going to happen. Here's what I predict. Nothing's going to happen. Because LCWR, leadership group, is continuing to get the speakers they want. They're pursuing the issues of justice that we know we have. It's the call of the gospel that we're following. And we're going to keep doing that. Now you watch and see if a hand's going to come down on us and that finger, naughty, naughty, you didn't get the bishops to approve this, and then they're going to pull us back and stop us.
0: Nothing is going to happen. Sister Helen Prejean was talking to Gerry McArdle, and that's our programme for this week. The phone number is 01 2039. Our email is godslot at rte.ie, and the postal address is the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back to our usual style of programme next week, which of course means that anything is possible. So, Gajeshin, Banat Jalif Gulair. Oh, I got have I Does